Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. What we're learning right now is that the U.S. Secret Service Uniform Division discovered a white powdery substance during routine patrols of the White House and immediately called this in. It was determined uh, that it, it, it's currently being investigated right now, the substance itself. Now, the Washington Post, which first reported on this, which led to a brief evacuation of the White House, cited a, a dispatch from a fire department a, a personnel indicating that this may have been cocaine. Now, the White House and official sources we've been speaking to are acknowledging that that dispatch exists, but they emphasize that this powdery substance is still being investigated. It's cocaine. Cocaine found at the White House, you know, or what we like to call in the business a Tuesday. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be back in the saddle. My thanks to Andrew Langer for filling in. You'll hear him a little bit more later this week. It's so, my schedule is dumb. We'll get into that. Yeah, they found cocaine at the White House, and everyone's like, oh, this is totally normal and totally fine. Sure it is. All right, all right, all right. Totally normal and totally fine. Switch Biden out for Trump, and this is a 24-7 news story. My God! Okay, it's happening. Everybody stay calm. What's the procedure, everyone? What's the procedure? Stay But it's Biden. And because it's Biden, it's not even a news story. I have got men who have had breast implants put in, exposing themselves at the White House, and now I've got cocaine in the White House, and the press corps is like, huh, you know, Ron DeSantis really is a fascist. Oh, yes, Ron DeSantis is a fascist. Fascist Ron DeSantis. Where's the German marching music when we talk about Ron DeSantis? You can either be driven crazy by these people, or you can notice that these people are crazy. But, of course, that leaves us with the question of what do we do about our friends who want to be driven crazy and don't want to notice that they're crazy? How do we handle our own relatives who can't figure out that what Joy Reid and what the squad are talking about isn't in any way connected to facts? This is, I wasn't able to do the, the editing, but maybe, maybe we, we will get it all from the full. This is Andrea Mitchell. Talking to James Clyburn. And she is she's on MSNBC, and this is her complaint to the representative from South Carolina. Uh, well, first, I wanted to ask you about uh, what you see coming up. You've got two presidential candidates already on the Republican side from your state. The president's heading down there. We all know that he wouldn't have won the nomination arguably without you and without South Carolina. It was pivotal to his victory. And South Carolina is now the first Democratic primary. So the the Democratic National Committee has gone ahead with what you have long wanted, is to have a more diverse population in the first primary. Um, But tell me about the president's disapproval uh, ratings and how you counteract that. He's not getting credit for his economic achievements. What economic achievements... What, what 
What rationally is this conversation? I share these two stories with you, not that they're the top stories of the day, but it shows a level of surrealism about what it is that is reported. How difficult it is to actually get an understanding of situations when there is an unwillingness to address them properly. What economic achievements is Andrea Mitchell actually discussing here? What possibly could she get to? Jim Clyburn, Congressman from South Carolina, good to have you here. Of course, you did all the work to get Joe Biden elected, and Joe Biden wouldn't be president if it wasn't for your work in South Carolina. How do you respond to cocaine being found in the White House? That's not question number one. That's not the only question. Sir, we know that Hunter Biden has had issues with drug use before, including cocaine. Has there been any question if you asked the president whether or not this was his own family? What? Cocaine found in the White House under Trump? And we're not already assuming that Eric really loves to snort? Stop it. I will not play pretend games. I will not act like somehow this is rational or this is normal. This isn't normal. Not normal led to the shooting and murder of five people in Philadelphia. Not normal led to a man who liked to dress as a woman, putting on a ballistic vest, grabbing a rifle, which uh, at last report was believed to be an AR and a handgun, and shooting indiscriminately, murdering five. It is an absolutely horrific story. But you'll note that I indeed mentioned that this was a man who dressed like a woman. I will also mention that it was a Black Lives Matter activist. There will be people who tell you you're not allowed to say those things. And we remind ourselves of Nashville, where a woman who claimed to be a man murdered six people, including three children, at the Nashville Christian Covenant School. We also know that this shooter went to the church next door, I think it was connected by like a skyway or or a bridge, and shot out one of the stained glass um, emblems, whether it was uh, of Jesus or or the Virgin Mary. And in any other instance, we would call this a hate crime, yet somehow, magically, it's not. Now, of course, all murders are hate crimes, but when the FBI decides to categorize it like this, when others try and share things like this, you might as well share it the way they share it to show them exactly how absolutely hypocritical they are in not engaging these things in its totality. If you want to say something is a hate crime, you have to apply the through line. You have to apply the standard all the way through. And if you don't, you suck. And we're exhausted by people who suck because we don't suck. We apply the through line, damn it. But they want to say, well, this is a hate crime. But this, you see, this is not even a thing. What are you looking at? What are you even looking at here? Why are you such a racist looking at that? Oh, you're setting up a culture war when you look at that. Oh, you want the manifesto of the woman who said they were a man and murdered six people? Well, we can't show you that. We can't have that. We can't release that because that could create a lot of concerns. That could create a lot of violence against certain marginalized groups. 
if any manifesto said the word Trump in it anywhere, it's all we would hear about. It's all we would know about. If there was any way to tie any shooting in Philadelphia where five people were murdered to Trump, they would already be on it. And Andrea Mitchell wouldn't have led with that question. She would have led with Representative Jim Clyburn as a black man. Tell me what you think of these murders where this Trump follower murdered five people. You know, I know, everybody knows, your Mima knows that would have been the question. But we're somehow supposed to believe that the real issue here is that Joe Biden isn't getting enough respect for his economic achievements. What economic achievements? But you keep saying it enough that people say, well, Biden's had a lot of economic achievements. Let's go back to the shooting. We can't know the manifesto because that might be problematic for transgender people. I want to know the manifesto. And I'm not going to stop mentioning that the person who is the suspect in this shooting in Philadelphia is a man who dressed like a woman and was associated with Black Lives Matter, which was a lie and a ruse and a scam and a grift from the beginning. And those major organizations and major companies who wrote checks to Black Lives Matter do not care about black people at all. They don't give a good holy damn. They wrote a get out of frail uh, get out of jail free check. I write this check and no one bothers me. Sounds good. Just uh put it under marketing, Joanne. Uh, Bob uh, uh, put that in the in the marketing uh, budget right there. That's that's what that's what that is. That's uh, yep. And um and uh, I'm going to do chicken salad for lunch. And that was it. None of, none of the organizations, none of the companies that gave to the organization Black Lives Matter give a damn about black lives at all. I said it. I meant it. I'm willing to go to the mattresses for it. Let's fight. You wrote it for your freedom. Well, I write this check and everyone will, you know, will tell everybody how woke we are and how good we are. Okay, that's worth it. It's directly out of the Jesse Jackson Shakedown Handbook, the Al Sharpton Shakedown Handbook, and now the Patrice Colors Shakedown Handbook. So not only was this person part of the grift in some way or another, they clearly had issues. This person clearly had issues to murder five people. And and as has been reported, five people who... Uh, we. we there doesn't seem to be a connection. Like the shooting seemed to be rather random. As has been reported. Now we may find uh, that, that things change as we get more information. I'm certainly up for that. This 40-year-old man was armed with a rifle, a pistol, extra magazines, a police scanner, and a bulletproof vest. This guy chased and killed a fifth man inside a home. Went after him. Yet I'm somehow going to be told that the issue here is the guns. Larry Krasner is the progressive district attorney of Philadelphia. A guy who the um, Pennsylvania General Assembly tried to remove from office. 
And he is on CNN. Uh, it's time for people who are running for office to swear off NRA money, to swear off gun lobby money, to swear off this absurd interpretation of the Second Amendment that has been put out there by militias, much of it untrue. Uh, and frankly, it's time for the Supreme Court to cut it out. This should not be a country of guns. It should be a country of people, living people. If I was running for office, I would gladly accept a donation from the NRA. I would just want the NRA to better clean up their act. Because if any of these people involved in murders were actually members of the NRA, they wouldn't go about shooting people. They wouldn't engage in mass murders. Maybe they'd take Eddie Eagle and learn about gun safety. Larry Krasner doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a progressive freak child. The Second Amendment is some weird interpretation because it's meant for militias and not you and me. Who the hell do you think the militia is? But I'm not here to argue the Second Amendment with a guy who just wants to yell and scream on CNN like he has something valuable to provide. He doesn't prosecute crimes like we see with prosecutors all across the country. We see this issue in Chicago. We see this issue in New York. We see this issue in Los Angeles. My beloved Indianapolis, maybe yours as well, has a prosecutor, a guy by the name of Ryan Mears. He doesn't want to prosecute crimes. He's unserious about the job. You think the gun is our issue still? Still you think the guns are the issue? This man, uh, this person, Mr. Carricker, had a gun conviction, and it obviously didn't stop this. He had a gun conviction back in 2003, and yet here we are, looking at, uh, you know, five people dead as a result of a mass shooting rampage where he was well-armed and had another firearm back at his residence. So, you know, what we are up against here uh, is people who would like to deflect, they would like to talk about other things, but the reality is this office has been extremely focused on gun violence, extremely successful in the prosecution of gun violence. We will vigorously prosecute this case, and all the people throwing out that criticism should show you their record on the votes that they put down or the votes they supported in relation to gun regulation. Pennsylvania's gun regulation is crap. It is crap. If you go to New Jersey, if you go to other states nearby, you go to Delaware, these states are safer, and they are states that have more reasonable gun regulation. It is time for a bunch of legislators who wear AR-15 lapel pins. It's time for them to quit or to get voted out we feel the same way about you although i admit wearing an ar-15 lapel pin is weird i i do i think it's weird i think i think it's it's a weird thing this guy had a i'm sorry did he say a conviction is that what he had and it obviously didn't stop this he had a gun conviction back in 2003 so how did he get the firearms did he steal them did he purchase them because that'd be a background check issue wouldn't that be the issue? Wouldn't that be the story? Wouldn't that be the 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 everything? Your your argument doesn't work if you're saying that I shouldn't be able to have a firearm because somebody else broke the law. And the argument of we need more laws doesn't work if people are still breaking the law. But most importantly, most importantly, all this conversation about the Second Amendment and the, the nonsense of uh, a progressive like Larry Krasner, the Philadelphia district attorney, that will all keep people from asking the question, what the hell is happening? Why is this happening? What is wrong with us as a society?
It isn't guns, actually. It is a societal and cultural rot. And I argue that it is indeed a society that tells everyone to hate everyone and everything. Every day, in every way. We tell people that they are being attacked, that they're being mistreated, that they are oppressed and someone else is an oppressor. And as I've noted, and somebody uh, mentioned this to me earlier in a conversation uh, Jordan Peterson had, and I've said this before, we taught a whole generation that their feelings matter and they're allowed to act out on their feelings and no one's allowed to tell them they're not allowed to have their feelings. Your feelings matter to you. They don't matter to other people, and you're not allowed to act out upon them. But as long as people feel that they can act out upon whatever it is they're feeling at any moment because what they're feeling is truth, well, then why should you be surprised that they sometimes act out in these kinds of ways? That is, by the way, part of the cultural rot. We don't seem to have leadership willing to openly and honestly discuss this, but it's not going to stop us. I'm Tony Katz. So you've got Ukrainian police investigating an explosion that took place in Kiev. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. Police received information that an explosion took place in the courthouse. An investigation, uh, an operative group, special forces, explosive technicians, and dog experts are working the, the site. Now, there's been a series of conversations, and of course, everything is in the backdrop of uh, Prigozhin trying to engage what was described as a coup against Vladimir Putin and inexplicably stopping, and you wonder what comes next from this. Because there are people who will tell you that that's the story. I'm here to tell you that that is not the story. That is far from being the whole story. A guy decides, screw it, I'm going to take my case to Moscow, has 25,000 troops at his disposal, disposal in his PMC, his private military company. Gets within 200 miles of Moscow and says, nah, you know what? You know, I, ne- never mind. Never mind, I'm good. Whole story is weird as can be. It was weird when it was unfolding a little over a week and a half ago. It's weird now. And is Putin actually weaker? I haven't seen anything that actually proves that. Except to say that his military is, of course, as we know, not very well trained. What they are is forced into battle. And Putin has really a a pretty large amount of people that he can throw at this fight. But this is um, this is a, a bit of a move. Now, there's another conversation happening regarding Ukraine, Russia, and a nuclear power plant. And whether or not the Russians are trying to, to blow this thing up, or whether it's, it's the Ukrainians trying to do this and it's a false flag, whoa. 
take a beat on all of it. Take a breath. We are not done with watching the fight with Ukraine and Russia. Not by a long shot. This is Tony Katz today. So affirmative action getting done away with by the Supreme Court. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. It was a 6-3 decision and a 6-2 decision because one was a case against the University of North Carolina. One was a case against Harvard regarding race-conscious admissions. And it was 6-3-6-2 because uh, you had Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson who had been at Harvard recusing herself from the Harvard case. And they said, no, uh, you can't have race-conscious admissions. At universities, William Jacobson joins us right now, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. So I figured instead of everybody just screaming and yelling their political position, let's actually take a look at what the heck has happened here, what these cases mean, break it down. And so I come to you, oh, William Jacobson, break down the cases, break down the law. What is it we're looking at here? Well, if you look historically back at affirmative action going back to the 1970s, it was viewed as mostly remedial that there had been multiple decades prior to that when blacks were excluded from many schools, when there was overt racism and overt discrimination. And so affirmative action was viewed as a way of making up for uh, people who had been excluded. That was fairly narrow, and that is still consistent with the law, that if you can show that a specific government department specifically excluded people on the basis of race, you can engage in affirmative action to cure that. But it's very specific. It has to be that unit and it has to be very provable. But affirmative action over time turned into something a lot more. You can received a huge helping hand from the Supreme Court in 2003 in the Grutter case as relates to higher education, where they held that having a diverse student body in and of itself was a uh, a potentially compelling state interest that would allow for some narrow and clearly defined and time limited, uh, you know, uh, favoritism on the basis of race. So affirmative action has changed over time from trying to cure close in time discrimination that had taken place really up until the 1960s to now it's simply uh, an agenda item to promote one race over another. As, as a matter of, uh, of law, and I'll give you a second there just to clear your throat and uh, get yourself a drink, uh, as, as a matter just of, of sheer law, as a matter of where the Constitution sits, should, should the federal government, should we have a, a say in in whether or not a university can admit anybody for any reason or not admit anybody for any reason? Well, there's a lot of factors there, and my throat is going to continue to be a little bit clogged. Sorry about that. Not a problem, man. Uh, There's nothing I can do. Uh, So, uh, you know, these schools all are either public institutions or they receive federal money. And when you take that federal money, you have to comply with variety of federal regulations. And when you are a public entity, you have to comply with, uh, you know, it's state action. So you've got to comply with the constitution, whether a truly private entity could get away with it remains to be seen because there's a whole host of other laws like public accommodations laws and things like that. 
But that's not the case here. We're talking about UNC, a public university, and you're talking about Harvard, which receives probably tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars a year in federal grants and contract money. So the day that Harvard and UNC could say, hey, that's none of your business, court system, federal court system, that never really existed, and it certainly doesn't exist now. So, yeah, it's everybody's business. Talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. So you just answered the question of why this is that the federal government has a, a place here because there is federal money. And we're, whenever we're talking about the private sphere, like we saw the case with the web designer who didn't want to design, uh, was, was it specifically a, a website for somebody who was gay or, or involving uh, same-sex marriages? And, and the court said, you, you don't have to design it. You have the right to say no. I'm not saying you should say no. I'm saying you have the right to say no. And I think this is going to lead into a conversation regarding the public accommodation uh, and whether or not that is still something that is is a worthy standard in the U.S. or whether you as a business owner, as a private business owner, can make decisions. But in this case, as you're well spelling out, this isn't about private. This is about whether or not government money can be used in, in these ways. And specifically, when we talk about that Harvard case, we know that Asian students were told, step to the side. We have enough people who look like you. I mean, that's really what was said to them by the Harvard staff and Harvard admissions. And that's what was part of the complaint here that you're telling me I'm not allowed in, not based on what you claim are the standards, but rather a standard on, on a color of skin or an ethnicity. Well, you know, Harvard denied deliberately discriminating. And they said that they only used race in their evaluations as a plus factor. And that was really what was before the Supreme Court is, can schools even use race at all? Can you have what's called race conscious decision making? I think that if Harvard come at, had come right out and been thoroughly transparent about it and say, we are going to limit the number of Asians, I don't think they'd, you know, they would have gotten away with that for as long as they did. But instead, Harvard has been this you know, trailblazing university, the top of the, the heap, so to speak, um, was a trailblazer in nuanced discrimination. They invented what's called the holistic model in the 1920s to keep Jews out, to limit the number of Jews. And they, have, they pioneered that. And they now use that same holistic model to limit the number of Asians. And they do it in very surreptitious ways, which were proven in the case. Took seven years of litigation, took a trial, took discovery. They fought this tooth and nail. And it did come out that they had a ruse going on. And the ruse going on was a personality score. And it just so happened that the personality score was the vehicle, that soft sort of evaluation, the vehicle to keep Asians out, as if Asians as a group have, uh, you know, bad personalities. So, and I think that was very damaging. And even in the opinion itself by the court, they included charts that the plaintiffs had prepared showing how much different Asians were treated than all other groups, but particularly than black applicants. And they showed Asians, and I might be wrong on the number here, but had to get like 140 or 150 points higher on the SATs right. to have an equivalent admissions rate as black applicants. 
And there's no other explanation for that other than discrimination. This so, holistic thing is, is I, I don't think people understand how pervasive it is. And of course, with your work at Legal Insurrection and the work you do uh, at, at, regarding critical race theory and seeing what's being taught on, on college campuses, Butler University, right down the road from me here in Indianapolis, immediately put out a statement that they're going to, going to continue to do a holistic review of all applicants, which really reads that Butler University, in my view, and many, many other universities, I don't want to single them out specifically, although they're the ones where, where I saw the tweet because it is local, have said, we see what you're saying, Supreme Court. We see that you've done away with affirmative action. We see that you've done away with race-conscious admissions, which is how UNC and Harvard were trying to deal with this. But we're going to do it anyway. That's very much what it seems uh, that they're saying. What's your take? Oh, absolutely. Anybody who thinks that affirm you see a lot of headlines. Supreme Court ends affirmative action. Affirmative action is dead, etc. is kidding themselves. These universities are completely addicted to racial preferences. It is part of their core philosophy on life. It is part of their core being. It's why we have diversity, equity, and inclusion has become a religion on campuses. They are not going to give this up. They, Harvard, immediately after the decision, sent out a statement that indicates how they're going to do it. So the court drew a distinction. You cannot consider the race of an individual in admissions, but you can consider that person's personal experiences with racism. And that was something that all the parties had said. You cannot stereotype students. You cannot say all black students get treated the same. All white students get treated the same. But you can, if somebody personally has overcome racism in their lives, you can consider that. And that is the loophole through which Harvard and other universities are going to try to drive a truck. They, Harvard was very smug about it. They quoted that sentence from the Supreme Court. And then they say, of course, we will comply with the court's ruling, meaning that's how they're going to do it. Of course, they didn't quote the next sentence in the opinion, which says these essays and these personal experiences can't be used as a device to evade our ruling. But that's exactly what they're going to do. Anybody who thinks racial preferences are over is kidding themselves. The schools will do a workaround almost universally. And, and, and it seems so incredibly obvious that that's the case. And as you point out the smugness there uh, of, of Harvard, as I pointed out uh, the point from, from Butler, they are seemingly just very okay with this. And as a matter of fact, not only okay with this, it seems to me that they're making the argument that you should accept this, that they know how to create justice does affirmative action, do you believe it did then, and we know I'm, I mentioned former Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, uh, do you believe it then engaged some level of justice and was, and as, a, as a matter of law, was it about righting a wrong and are these uh, schools, in taking a look at race as their key factor for admissions, it would seem, are they righting a wrong? Well, the wrong that took place took place many decades ago and to some extent centuries ago. Uh, you know, but since the mid 1960s, we've had very strong laws. We've had unstated affirmative action since the 1970s. And I use that term specifically because the uh, 
dean of Berkeley Law School, very highly ranked, top 10 law school, was caught on videotape using that term, unstated affirmative action. Now, he was talking about the hiring process at Berkeley Law School, that we can think it, we can uh, you know, vote for it, but we can't say it and that we can't say we're doing affirmative action because that's actually banned in California by part proposition, it's banned. So what you you've have multiple generations now where there has either been explicit affirmative action under the Grutter ruling and the pre prior rulings that, or you've had unstated affirmative action. So to argue in 2023 that we have immediate past wrong that needs to be narrowly remedied, maybe that flew in 1970. And I think you can make a good argument in 1970 for that, but not in 2023. It's not about righting a wrong to particular individuals. It's a social agenda. Now, there has been a tremendous amount of response to the affirmative action ruling, to this ruling uh, about uh, free speech where you can't force a web designer to make a, a website they don't want to make, just like you should never have tried to force Masterpiece Cake Shop to make to decorate a, a cake for a same-sex couple. And I will tell you, and I would, I would debate it with you another time, that I'm somebody who opposes the public accommodation. It seems uh, that the, the, while I believe it in cultural theory, that in legal uh, in the legal world, I don't think any business should be forced to to serve me. If you are a a restaurant, to, you know, fully privately funded, and you don't want to serve me. Well, then, my gosh, don't serve me. I I think that that should be uh, allowed as a case of uh, uh, and a concept of, of freedom uh, more than anything else. But that's that's a subject for 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 another day. I want to share with you this. This was the headline of an article from Mehdi Hassan over at MSNBC, who died and made the Supreme Court uh, a Congress. And it's all about how here we have a Supreme Court. Now, of course, the Supreme Court, it's radical because it has some conservatives uh, on the bench. Now it's a radical Supreme Court and they're legislating from the bench and we shouldn't listen to these responses anyway. We shouldn't listen to these decisions. As a matter of fact, we should pack the court. We should have more justices on the court because nothing in the Constitution discusses the number of justices and we shouldn't allow them to have this level of control mainly because they're saying things we don't like on the political left. How do you respond to that? How do you teach your students to respond? Well, I I think that what you're seeing go on is a frustration from the left that the one major institution they don't control is the Supreme Court. And to call the Supreme Court activist is really having it back way, backwards. They're not forcing anybody to do anything. They're saying, you know, they're protecting individual liberties in the case of the website designer. It's not so much that she can't serve people but she can't be forced to express a message with which she disagrees. And the same is true in the affirmative action cases. They're not forcing anybody to do anything. They're saying the limit, they're pointing out the limits on government's ability to do things, that individuals have a right to equal protection of the laws and the government can't you know, uh, disrupt that, can't in, in, uh, impinge on that. And so with this, all of, most of the Supreme Court decisions are the exact opposite of a totalitarian <clears throat> or authoritarian uh, mentality. They're enabling individual freedom. And so that's really uh, you know, bizarre to hear those sort of complaints. But Mehdi Hassan and people like that, 
it's just purely political. It's a, they want power. They're so used to having power and they they never complain when the Supreme Court would make things that change the nature of our society, whether you like them or not, like finding a right to abortion in the early 1970s or finding a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. These are things that changed the, the landscape of the country in many ways. And you didn't hear people like Mehdi Hassan and others at MSNBC complaining about it when they did that. Uh, and so these Supreme Court decisions are actually just empowering individual rights and scaling back government control. William Jacobson, LegalInsurrection.com. I appreciate you being with us. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Independence Day, which is a pretty good holiday for people to drink beer and therefore sell beer. Bud Light continues to fall into the crapper. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. As the latest reporting goes, Bud Light sales down 28% as they were heading in to the Independence Day holiday. It is stunning that some people still haven't learned this lesson. Don't lecture, just sell. Don't force things upon us, just let us buy the product. Leave us alone and everything will be okay. Man, the number of people who simply don't want to leave us alone. They're desperate not to leave us alone. They dream of not leaving us alone. I don't understand that. All I want to do is be left alone. Why is it that so many other people want to bother so many other people? Maybe Bud Light has figured it out, but I don't think the rest of corporate America has at all. This is Tony Katz today. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. <laughs> 